Hi everyone, it's Peter Bassler from ESEC Lending coming to you again from Westport, Connecticut. Ahead of the 4th of July weekend, I can't believe it's July and we're still uh, in this bit of a nightmare. But anyway, we are. So happy to be here again. And I'm joined as always by my colleague, Brooke Gilman from Lake Champlain, where she's probably going to go water skiing this weekend. And we also have a special guest, Bill Locke, who's our chief risk officer. So he's joining the podcast for the first time. So welcome, Bill. And he's coming to us from Milford, Massachusetts. So how are you hey, guys everybody. Doing today? You guys doing all right today? Yeah. Doing yeah. Well. Thanks. Doing well. before we start? I just had a bolt of lightning out my window, uh, probably with about a mile out or so, I'd say. Pretty uh, exciting. Stormy weather up here. Yeah, it's supposed to storm yeah. here, too. So hopefully We've got thunder boomers going on right now in Milford. So. Nice. Yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully our audience won't have to listen to any of the thunder boomers, but... There you go. Anyway. <laughs> All right, great. Well, let's let's get into it. So I think today we wanted to talk, and this is also another uh, ask of our audience of what we wanted to talk about. So I think we wanted to talk about a topic with cash collateral that you know most of our mutual fund clients think about, which is do I do I put the cash collateral in a government fund or do I put it into a prime fund? And you know, in my conversations with clients and prospects, it's often a, a yield question and a risk question. And so prime funds are typically, you know, 30 basis points higher than government funds, but they also come after money market reform with the floating NAV situation. So, you know, you often find people debating which one I want to use and uh, government funds often will then restrict your ability to do general collateral. So there are a lot of different things that play into that uh, discussion. And I think, Bill, when we think about when this crisis kicked off, you know, these two different products behave differently. And I was just curious if you can comment on kind of the risk picture of government versus prime and floating NAV um, as the, you know, the COVID crisis kicked off. Yeah. So in uh, the second, third week of March, uh, the Fed had surprised the markets with a 50 basis point uh, cut in the Fed funds target rate. Uh, and they followed it roughly about a week or so later with another big surprise, full percentage point cut in the target rate. And that really shook up the market. Market participants uh, scrambled for liquidity at that point, taking uh, a lot of uh, AUM out of the prime money market funds and shifting it over into the government money market funds. Basically, a flight to quality, a flight to safety, pretty much across the board in the market. And how, um, Bill, has that balance of um, shifted back a, in a significant way from government back to prime in terms of flows at this point? And, and, and how quickly did that happen after sort of the, the Fed intervened to stabilize the market? Yeah, so the Fed undertook a number of steps to stabilize the market. And they basically dusted off a lot of the tools that they employed uh, back in late 2008 into 2009. So, you know, they dusted off the primary dealer credit facility, the money market fund liquidity facility, commercial paper funding facility, as well as uh, a number of other, you know, swap lines and different things like that, basically to provide backstop to the money markets. That definitely helped shore things up, but the market went through a period where that scramble of liquidity was evidenced in a number of ways. You know, you saw uh, big drawdowns on bank credit lines. You saw big non-financial type of commercial paper issuers in the market where, for the most part, they really don't tap the market uh, that regularly. But in their own scramble, 
to preserve liquidity and to gather liquidity as much as they could, they issued into the commercial paper market. And with the announcement from the Fed that they were basically there to act as a backstop and a backstop for commercial paper issuers, for money market mutual funds, for the primary dealers and so forth. The market basically said, all right, well, we've got the Fed behind us. The Fed is there to provide whatever liquidity is needed in this marketplace. And uh, the market started to right itself. The, the issues of commercial paper were able to satisfy whatever their needs were. The banks were able to provide liquidity through those credit lines to a lot of their own clients that were tapping them. Um, so the, the scramble for liquidity was met. There were strains that appeared somewhat in the prime money market fund space where what we generally saw across the board were uh, their measures of one day and one week liquidity kind of get pulled down. Um, we never really saw them get pulled down into sort of precarious levels, but they definitely, you could see that they lost some liquidity because again, there was AUM outflow in those funds. We also saw some NAV uh, depression. You know, these money market funds, the prime funds prior to all of this scramble for liquidity have been roughly around a dollar per share either at or above a dollar per share for the most part. And in the wild scramble for liquidity, uh, we saw some of their NAVs drop into the high, you know, 99s. Nothing where, you know, they were anywhere near kind of breaking the buck or anything like that. And uh, although we did hear of um, a couple of the smaller types of prime funds needing to be shored up by their sponsors, there really was not something that was a prevalent experience. Like we saw, you know, 12 years ago, uh, some of the other strains on the prime funds. But uh, the market took probably about three or four weeks before it really, I would kind of consider it to be kind of writing itself. And I would define that as more like the AUMs of uh, the prime funds started to recover from what they had lost. You know, they, uh, there was definitely a herd mentality out of the funds. And then once basically market players, institutional investors determined that things were safe again and that there was not a true credit type of issue or any type of broad credit issue with any of the funds. It was really a liquidity type of strain and the, that strain had been met by you know, a lot of different uh, you know, support from the Fed, especially. The AUM started to come back into the prime funds and basically take advantage of the yield that they were able to, to attain. The, the government funds with the big cuts uh, from the Fed and the Fed funds, dis Fed funds rate and the discount rate and where repo is trading, the government funds really, their yields dropped uh, fairly fast, whereas the prime funds, their yields were, you know, have been stickier on the way down. And that has been an attractive uh, advantage for investors into the prime funds. I know we saw some of our clients having, you know, upwards of 100 basis points spread to OBFR for prime funds. So that was a huge uptick in revenue for people in those products. What about how did people react to that decline in the NAV? Because that, this is all kind of post money market reform where this was never really tested that well before this, right? But this is really what, what the intention was to float the NAV so that you could actually see true value in, in a time of crisis. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so the, the prime funds had uh, some benefit from owning. Uh, some of the more seasoned product kind of before all of this, you know, multiple cuts by the Fed and rates and things like that. So the prime funds had some seasoned product that as long as it hadn't been liquidated because of any liquidity needs uh, on the fund, it still had some of that product 
the prime funds also were able to take advantage in early April when, and this is kind of just after the Fed had, had announced and then started to implement all these various support programs to the money markets, the prime funds were able to take advantage of the remaining dislocation in the marketplace where there were, again, these big non-financial, for the most part, issuers in the marketplace issuing one, two, three month paper. They're able to get really good yields on the, those products. They're also able to take advantage of some of the other financial uh, issuers of CDs, Yankee CDs especially, uh, in the marketplace, either fixed or floating rate, where they're able to get some really good coupons, they're really able to get some really good spreads over the various indexes that are used for those floating rate products. And um, they, sh the prime funds generally showed that they had really good yield and the yield was, as you said, was well above where OBFR was kind of clocking because OBFR started clocking kind of around, you know, five or six basis points. And uh, the yields on these funds were, were well over, you know, 100 basis points over that. It was, it was really good spread where you, you had to kind of sort of change gears and take a look at what were the NAVs doing. So the NAVs were basically reflecting that by pricing the holdings within the funds, there still was probably some drag on some of the other seasoned product that was held in the funds, as well as if the fund had to, um, in order to generate liquidity, had to go through some, you know, uh, sell some paper, sell some investments, uh, while the scramble of liquidity was going on and maybe had to, you know, incur uh, some sort of a loss on something and kind of, you know, basically pass it through the NAV for a period of time. So if you're a prime fund investor, you definitely got paid for the yield. And as long as you could maintain your investment in the fund and not have to fully liquidate it, you could sort of ride with an unrealized type of loss exposure until it righted itself. And so now, you know, these prime funds are now, their NAVs are back uh, over a dollar. So if you, you know, were able to uh, retain your investment in these funds, you know, you, you got back to where, you know, you don't have any unrealized loss again, and uh, you know, you're enjoying a better yield than you've got an NAV, which, you know, shouldn't be concerning at all. So Bill, with that, can you talk about, because I recognize that, you know, this was a more uh, heightened market period of, of extreme volatility where there were some, you know, bigger swings in the NAV and what lenders, cash lenders that are utilizing money funds as their reinvestment product choice needed to think about in terms of different style programs and, and their ability to maintain balances or, you know, how the size of their on-loan balances the volatility of those on-loan balances, you know, play a key factor during sort of a, a market period like this. But can you also talk about it in a sort of stepping away from just the last handful of months and thinking about it more long-term and broadly, what, what lenders of different size and, and program scopes should think about over time as well when they're considering sort of a dollar constant NAV option versus a floating NAV option? Yeah, sure. So, you know, taking a step back from something that's kind of an idiosyncratic event, which we've been, we went through in March into early April, I guess, you know, the basic way that I've always thought about when you're in a securities lending program where you're generating cash collateral and then reinvesting the cash collateral is to think of it as a true asset liability management play that is, that is, has kind of a, a leg of liquidity management on 
both sides. So liquidity management on the asset side as well as on the liability side. And what I mean by that is that uh, you know you could have we could you could have a portfolio, a lendable portfolio that is pretty stable, um, doesn't have a lot of turnover. The the trading desk uh, has a good feel for being able to have sustainable balances that are that are fairly stable in terms of uh, you know they don't really change up or down too much. But each and every day, you've got mark to market on the activities, so it creates cash flow in and out of how that that cash has to be managed. So it's just inherent uh, that there's liquidity management really on both sides. Then just start to put in sort of all the practicality of a, of a true lending program, which is sort of there's you know a mix of assets on one side, there's a mix of liabilities on the other side. So. And then you, so what I mean is you start to build in what are the dynamics on the asset side. So what's the, the WAM, the weight average maturity of how, how the cash is being invested? What's the sort of yield? What are the sensitivities to it? How do things reprice within it? You know, what are the types of liquidity constraints to it or diversification requirements? All the different things like that that would factor into how does that asset yield function as well as on the liability side. So just how, how much turnover might there be in that loan book? Uh, if, it's, if it's a lot of GC activity, there, there might just be a lot of turnover because you know, the borrowers are, are going to feel as though GC is so interchangeable that there may be big returns as well as big loan amounts and things like that. So just by using that as kind of in a broad brush, kind of the basics, and then you more or less take what are the true attributes of your lendable portfolio. So what are where are there, you know, sticky issues in there that are hard to borrow, that are hotter types of securities that'll get out on loan and that will stay out on loan? What component of it is GC? What are the balances? Things like that. Once you get a feel for that, and our trading desk would be very much in tune to what sort of sustainable balances they might see and in terms of difficulty or ease in terms of keeping them sustainable and what sort of cost might be involved, whether or not it's going to be something that we're going to be able to get out at, at a special level below OBFR, or whether it's going to be at OBFR plus, you know, some sort of a GC type balance. Uh, once you get a feel for that, then you got to think of if you're investing into funds, you would want to think about what sort of yield do you need to have in order to maintain the balances. So what is your cost of the liability side look like or the cost of funds versus whatever yield you're going to attain? We've always talked about uh, it's probably very beneficial for most clients if they're going to take a look at prime funds as well as government funds is to think about a sort of a core investment in the prime funds and then something which can really handle any liquidity needs or volatility up and down in terms of online balances and cash investments more in the government portfolio. And what that gets to is that the government fund is, has a stable $1 you know, asset value versus the floating NAV that's in the prime fund. That way, when you think about the prime fund investment is more of a core investment, something that you know, you're going to park the money there and you're, you're really going to be able to sustain balances and not have to sort of move in and out of that type of investment. Um, you're not as concerned about what that NAV is doing because you're not transacting kind of in and out of that fund at the NAV. Whereas if you're doing more transacting, you'd probably prefer to, to be in and out of the treasury or the government fund where it's a dollar in, dollar out. You're not worried about it. 
Right, right. Because even, I mean, let's just use a very simple example of a lender that that you know at the start of the month might have 100 million on loan and mid month might have 200 million on loan and towards the end of the month because they've sold out of securities that are of any value has zero on loan i mean you know that's an extreme circumstance in the example and you know not typical but that sort of a lender that could fluctuate to you know having on loan balances to going to drawing down to very little on loan you know probably isn't as um, well suited to floating NAV fund in you, in your examples is that a, is that fair you know in terms of that description I think it's fair I think you know you described probably more of a like a unique type of situation but you know sometimes you do see them especially where it's the fund or the client may have you know, a, a pool that has, uh, you know, one or two issues where either, you know, it could be a corporate action event that could be, you know, something that's you know, completely unique where it generates a burst of on-loan activity and then kind of it's very finite, right? And then it, it sort of comes back. And in that case, you know, if it's, especially if it's in a, you described sort of a month type of horizon. So if it's in a shorter period of time, whatever offset that you might be able to gain by the additional yield of a prime fund is probably going to be negated by sort of an NAV type risk. So if, you know, if you're in at, you know, a dollar or two and, you know, it's, you know, then you're going to get out at a dollar or one or a dollar flat, whatever that you know, sort of losses may just completely wipe out whatever additional yield you've been able to attain for whatever that short period of time is. So again, it's all about sort of a, you know, sustainable balance over a period of time, whether or not it's feasible, as well as what that cost of, you know, that rebate rate cost is of, of putting the securities out on loan, what's it going to cost you? So there's sort of that whole mix of factors that you'd want to consider. But, you know, I think by and large, if you had a portfolio that was for the most part, you know, stable, or at least had some kind of a core stability to it in terms of on-loan balances, you know, then you could definitely think of, hey, I can, I can put, you know, a core amount into a prime fund, and then I can handle the liquidity needs via the government or the treasury money market fund. Right. That's great. Thanks, Bill. I think that's great insight. I mean, I think everyone thinks, at least people I've talked to often think, well, government's conservative primes, you know, somewhat taking a little bit more risk because you're taking credit exposure. But I think they're all the things you just talked about, liquidity, additional return on prime, all of these things need to be factored into what kind of program like Brooke talked about related to balances, what, what type of balance is stable, what type of balance isn't stable. You know, all of those things need to be factored in. I think periodically looking at where am I with prime versus government and is there a room to do both? Because I think most of our clients who are in prime will also have a 10% bucket for late day liquidity in, in government. So I think all of those things, it's, an, it's a, just a bigger and more important topic than I think many people think about. I also make the observation that a lot of people who, money asset managers that are comfortable going into prime and floating NAV often take that piece of the business in-house and manage it with their own internal resources, which uh, makes them even more comfortable with that, that added uh, risk of the, uh, the prime floating NAV. I was going to say too, I, I mentioned earlier the whole, you know, one leg of in either side in terms of liquidity management. So you also want to think about on um, your lendable assets, you know, is there any kind of latent liquidity there as well? So, so, for example, you know, one of the things that any type of securities lending agent is going to deal with when they're managing cash and they're, they're investing cash into various types of mutual funds are, 
you know, the prime funds have a cutoff each day of really around 2.30 to 3 o'clock. I mean, the actual deadline is 3, but, you know, for all intents and purposes, let's say it's like 2.30, whereas the government and treasury funds, their deadline is 5 o'clock. So you can run into situations where through no fault of anybody, but, uh, you know, all of a sudden you've got returns that are coming in uh, of equities uh, that have been out on loan, GC equities particularly, where they'll be start they'll start coming back at you know one thirty two o'clock something like that, and maybe even later um, as long as DTC is open. So you know there can be a need for if you see these equities coming back, is there anything else that there's some latent liquidity within the lendable asset portfolio where perhaps you've got some U.S. Treasuries that could be turned around and and put back out. Uh, even at GC type levels, but at least they're able to fill sort of the cash need that you have and that you're not going in and, and drawing down any of the liquidity on the investment side and in particular in the prime funds because you're looking at a, at a three o'clock deadline that you're dealing with. One other thing that I think is worth noting just because we haven't spoken about it is that especially for programs that have um, balances of size that what we oftentimes see clients doing is utilizing a multi-fund strategy um, where they might utilize a number of prime funds as well as even more than one government fund across across their program. And I think that that also can help as well in terms of monitoring the different funds, both in terms of liquidity, but what, where the NAV sit and, you know, being able to pull, if you needed to start pulling out of a more core investment, um, being able to determine where, where best you want to pull that money as well. It's true. You know, and for the really, for the, the largest clients, because you've got pretty good sized cash portfolio to invest, you're looking at the, the total AUM of the money market fund itself, because, you know, you don't, there's kind of a sort of a uh, two-way thing here where we on your behalf don't want you to be such a big or large, you know, shareholder within a fund. So, you know, any of your particular needs for liquidity might really strain the fund. So at the same time, the, the fund manager doesn't want to have, and lots of times we'll have rules where, you know, the single shareholder uh, limit, but they'll, they'll try to operate probably under an official limit. Just again, it's sort of a prudent way to not have a lot of eggs in one basket, uh, so to speak. So it's definitely true that it's good to have a variety of different funds. That's something that we do on the risk side here in terms of you know, monitoring various funds, I'm seeing basically how they behave, what their holdings are like, ensuring that they're properly rated, AAA and so forth. Kind of taking a look at uh, just the way that they're functioning, not just in terms of yield, but also in what their NAVs are doing and what their, their weight average maturities, weight average lives, uh, expense ratios, various things like that. So, you know, it is good to, to have a menu of different uh, eligible funds to invest in. It's good to point out too, Bill, from what you were just saying, that we at ESEC, we do do our own layer of analysis. We have an approved list. We don't just look blindly at ratings and we're actually digging into these products so, uh, so there's definitely another layer of oversight from, from our side. Well, that's great. I think uh, we're, we're about at time, guys. But Bill, great to have you on here and great insight on this topic. And I think it's one that, that deserves a lot of attention and someone asked to hear about it. So hopefully uh, all you out there listening got something out of it and uh, wish you all a happy uh, 4th of July long weekend. Good. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye, folks. Bye, Peter.